0: and welcome back to the Girl girl.gov podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today I will be speaking with Elise Robinson, who is a PhD candidate in theater and performance studies at the University of Georgia, an instructor for the Institute of Women's Studies, a longtime feminist, activist, theater practitioner, writer, and scholar. Her research is grounded in an intersectional feminist approach to performance and women's lives, both historically and in the present moment. She lives in Athens, Georgia with her husband and two daughters, three cats and a dog. So we are also doing a giveaway for this episode. So if you are interested, please go head over to our Instagram at girl.gov podcast. We will be giving away one of Elisa's favorite books. And with that being said, let's get into the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the importance of mental health and we know firsthand how difficult taking that first step can be. BetterHelp makes that easier by assessing your needs and matching you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and since BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Financial aid is available and you can visit betterhelp.com slash podcast. That's better H-E-L-P and take advantage of the special offer for girl.gov listeners. You can take 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash podcast. Thanks again, BetterHelp, for sponsoring today's episode. you so much for being here. I would love for you to kind of introduce yourself and just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with women's studies. Great. Well, good morning, Rachel. I'm very excited to be here. My name is Elise
1: Robinson and I am a PhD um, candidate at the University of Georgia. My degree will be in performance studies, but I also have a certificate in women's studies, a grad certificate in women's studies. And I've been teaching for the women's studies program at the University of Georgia for the last four years. Yeah, my background has always been in in sort of theater and performance, directing and acting, and also the history and literature and, and drama. But I've also been a feminist kind of from birth. My mom was definitely part of the second wave of feminism and, you know, had consciousness raising sessions and um, sort of raised her daughters and her sons to be aware of women's issues and women's roles and to take pride in that. And so that has been a perspective that has sort of infused my entire education. You know, I would... I got taken on marches um, when I was like in elementary school and I've always been really interested in politics and political theater and performance as activism. That's kind of my area of specialization is using theater and performance techniques for political ends to like promote political ends and specifically feminist, feminist performance activism is kind of my, my jam. So when I thought about like doing theater, like in college, my senior thesis project was an evening of feminist theater and my master's thesis was on women's influence in certain theatrical history episodes and so that's just always been something that's really centered my worldview and when I got to UGA and had the opportunity to teach women's studies I really just found like a great academic home for myself there I love teaching this subject I love the students that I get to teach I love being able to sort of um, connect with students on a topic that is so immediately relevant to their lives um, in a lot of ways and And uh, it's just a really exciting, I think, urgently needed um, area of
0: study. So that's kind of where I am. I completely agree with that and I think it's really cool that you kind of combined like your two loves of theater and feminism and kind of meshed them together. I know that you spoke about that feminism has always been something that you kind of grew up around and my next question is what drew you to actually doing women's studies and having that as a career? Was there kind of like an aha moment when you were deciding what you wanted to do as a career that it kind of just made sense for you to do that? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think career-wise, it was when I was getting my my graduate certificate in Women's Studies, so I was taking some Women's Studies seminars, and I sort of, it just sort of clicked like, oh, this is something that I've really been thinking about and doing for my whole life. And that's something that I can also do professionally. What? Okay. Like I had sort of always thought of it as a sort of essential add-on, right? Like I'll do theater, but I'm gonna add in the women's studies component. And so I had that kind of shift that, no, this could be the, the focus. And I can always do performance stuff and theater stuff like that. They 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 mesh together really well. Um, so it's not like I lose anything by, by shifting that kind of focus ever so slightly. And then also, like I said, the experience of teaching it and connecting with the students and seeing how well received and how well stu- the students connect to that area of study um, just really gave me that motivation to kind of keep thinking about pursuing it. And so now, you know, I'm applying for jobs or looking at doing talks and stuff. It's, it's, like, it's like I suddenly had permission to focus on this thing that's been so important to me and so, um, so central to my life for so long.
0: It must be really gratifying to be teaching these courses and having kids come in and like learning all the history. Is there ever moments where like kids are like either really fascinated with what you're teaching or like, they kind of have like that light bulb that kind of goes off in their head? Like, oh my God, this is feminism is so needed, especially now in our culture and the kind of the society that we're in right now. Yes. Um, how, how is that like seeing that in
1: real time? Oh my gosh. It's the most amazing thing ever. Like it's my favorite. So I, one of the classes that I've taught really regularly has been our intro to women's studies class. And so that's where you get in a lot of people who maybe haven't had a ton of exposure to it before. Now I will say they took that class. So they clearly have some interest in it, right? But I also know that some students take it because, you know, women's studies has a reputation for being an easy A or whatever, you know, so they, they don't all come in necessarily convinced that this is going to be their new thing. So there there are two things, especially that happen have happened repeatedly that I just get super jazzed about. And one is the first day of class, I usually show them this great TED Talk that you maybe know about already. It's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's We Should All Be Feminists. And it's one mm-hmm. of the most popular TED Talks ever. And she's this fantastic, she's a, a writer, from Nigeria. She's written amazing novels and also nonfiction. And she has this TED talk where she talks about her kind of awakening to feminism. So I show that the first day of class. And then we talk about how, how students define feminism. What do they think that word means? You know, who do they think it includes? Who does it exclude? And we kind of hash that all out. And then the next week, we look at the history of the feminist movement. So we look at the suffragettes and sort of the early, the early sort of first agitators on behalf of women's rights. And usually students, they may have seen the The TED talk, they may have seen other TED talks, they may have heard the word feminism or talked about it, but they usually don't know a lot about the history of the movement. And Mm -hmm. so, them learning like how crazy it was, like back in the early 1900s and the crazy things that women did to get the right to vote and to be taken seriously as members of society, that usually blows their minds. Like these women were starved and they were force fed and they bombed mailboxes and they broke windows. And I mean, they did crazy stuff. And so usually that's the first kind of light bulb moment. Like, oh, this isn't new. You know, like these women back in the, you know, early, early, early part of the 20th century were, were as rambunctious and as outspoken and as committed to the cause as any activist is today. And that's usually the first light bulb. And the Mm -hmm. second light bulb moment that I super, super love is when we, um, we study Sojourner Truths, Ain't I a Woman's Speech. And that's fantastic. So my whole approach to, to feminism is very intersectional. So it's very much about, it's not just about uh, gender, it's also about race and class and sexuality and all these identity categories. And so it's really important to me that that my students get a background on that too. And so we look at Sojourner Truth's speech and many of them have had have read it or had access to it in high school or at least have heard about it or heard her name. But they what they don't realize is that the version of her speech that most people learn is not, what she actually said. And in fact, in her actual speech, she never uttered the phrase, ain't I a woman? That's a version of her speech that was rewritten by a white abolitionist, feminist, like 12 years after the fact. And so that really gives us this great discussion about like how are black women treated in the women's movement and how, why would this change have happened? And why don't we recognize and, and value women of color in the movement to the same degree that we do middle-class white women. And so that's another light bulb moment. Like, oh, this thing that I learned in high school and that my civics teacher taught me about, like, isn't even the accurate version. What? Mm -hmm. So it, those are my two kind of favorite moments that happen every semester. And that students will come back to me after the class is over and say, like, I still can't believe this. I I had to tell my other teacher this thing they didn't even know. And it's like drugs to me. It's like my favorite thing ever (laughs) to have those like moments.
0: And I mean, you probably just saw it in my face right now. Like, I didn't even know that. (laughs) Right, nobody knows. That's crazy to me. Yeah, and I I think that brings up such a good topic of like women obviously play such a vital role in history. Why do you think that they're often overlooked or their stories are changed or like manipulated into different narratives depending on the person who's telling it? And even their stories are always downplayed. Why do you think that is? That is a really, really, really good, really complicated question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess one thing I would
1: say is when we talk about the sort of systematic oppression of women and women's voices, we also have to recognize that that's historically contextual, that's historically specific. So that's very much been a pattern, a repeated pattern in Western Northern cultures. Um, It isn't always, it has not always been the case in sort of indigenous cultures or in the global South. There are other cultures that still exist that are much more equitable in terms of the way that they treat women's voices. So that's something I, Find hopeful, right? Like it's not just a foregone conclusion that women are going to be um, excluded. But I do think that one one reason why women's studies is so urgent, um, and why I sort of feel like everybody should have to take a women's studies class, is that you know, even though we've made some really tangible progress in like the last hundred years in terms of women's voices and women's um, presence in society. In some ways I feel like the, the sexism that still exists and there's a lot of it, um, has sort of gotten more insidious and more hard to kind of put your finger on, right? Sort of in the way that racism has too, right? Like, so, you know, it's no longer socially acceptable in any place that I am aware of to accept maybe a Ku Klux Klan meeting to use the N word, right? Like we know we that's not acceptable anymore and it used to be, and that's a big important change, but that doesn't mean that racism is gone, right? And so it's no longer acceptable to, um, socially in most places, to, you know, overtly discriminate against a woman in hiring or or any other kind of life situation. But there are so many subtle ways or underground ways that that can happen. And that gets harder to talk about. And so one of the things that I think women's and feminist studies is really useful for is helping us to recognize these systems of oppression and and sort of uh, of putting down women and and to be able to talk about them in even in this kind of sneaky ways that
0: they often are present in our lives today. That makes me think, like, I, I know I took a women's studies class in undergrad, but I know that this class specifically that you're teaching and just what you just said right now is teaching young women to identify those in real time so like when they go off to corporate America or they go into their careers they're able to spot those and I me looking back now I think about like my early years in my career and I'm like those things should not have been happening to me and like right and and they are very small like small, subtle ways that people still do it and companies, especially too. I think like yep. big corporations are. Oh, co- corporate they,
1: cultures. Yeah. It's yeah. bad with that.
0: They say they're equitable, but then you look at the data and you're like, mm, not so much. And like,
1: maybe they're like, you know, <laughs> adhering to the letter of the law, but women are still struggling. And I think as, as strictly as young women coming up in corporate culture or in academic culture or in just adult culture, um, it can be really challenging to, to speak to that. Right. So you may be feeling it, but you want to like dismiss it and be like, no, no, I'm sure that it's just me or I'm sure that it's, you know, they're trying their best or whatever. And so, yeah, I do feel, I, I often say that teaching is my activism. And so, yeah, I do feel that like a part of, a part of having a class with me is, is growing into your empowered voice and and learning to trust that impulse and to say, okay, if I'm feeling like there's something off here, I need to trust that feeling and sort of pursue it. And that's not, I, I still have problems with that, right? Like that's not easy to do, but it's so important. And I wanted to say, I, I, I'll i let you keep talking in a minute but I just wanted to say that a thing that I think is is critical about women's studies is not just the way that it empowers the women that take the classes but also the ways that it empowers the men and and the way that it expands our, our whole Notion of gender, so non-binary people and trans people as well. And one of the the things I we just did this recently in my class is we talk about the way that people's lives may differ in in ways that you can't recognize if you don't live them. And one of the exercises that we typically do in my intro class is when we're talking about rape culture and sort of sexual assault and harassment, is I'll I'll I'll, I'll put a, a I'll draw on the whiteboard and I'll sort of say okay. Um, Anybody who identifies as a man, um, give me a list of things that you do every day to prevent yourself from being sexually attacked or harassed, and I'll wait. And the male identifying students will sort of sit there and kind of look like it's a joke, and maybe they'll giggle. And then finally, one of them will say, well, I don't I don't do you uh, yeah, I don't do anything like that. And they'll say, cool, cool, cool. So I'll put that up on the whiteboard, and then I'll do it again. And then I'll say, okay, now everybody who identifies as a woman, or who, or a non-binary person, or who doesn't identify as a man, give me some examples of things that you do on a daily basis. You know, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's like you know, dozens of things. It's like the keys between the fingers, and the lights, and calling a friend while you're coming home after dark, and getting somebody to escort you. And I mean, you know, you know, right? All the things that yeah. we do. And what's amazing about that is, first of all, it gives women a chance to kind of vent about this, but also the men in the class they have no idea. Like they just have no idea. And so it's a really important discussion, both because I think the men genuinely don't know because women just don't talk about it with men, I guess, as much as maybe we should be doing. And so that's an awakening for them. Like, oh, wait, for real. And also because that empowers the men then to be more like if the, you know, if, if they have a, a, a female friend who's like, hey, could you walk me to my car? Instead of being like, you're fine. Nothing's going to happen. Right. They'll be like, oh yeah, I, I can, I can do that for you. Right. So it's really about, and this is core for me is that feminism and women's studies is absolutely for everybody. And, and I think the name sometimes gives people the impression that it's just for women, whatever that even means, but it's super not like, it's really about changing culture as a whole.
0: Yeah. And I I think too, it, you do make a good point of some people not being able to relate through lived experiences. And especially for men, I think, you know, those conversations of like rape and sexual assault are very heavy conversations. So I think for a lot of men, it might not be so much ignorance. It might just be like out of sight, out of mind, which could be, a part of ignorance, but it's more so of like, those are heavy conversations to have with someone. And so it's, I think it's great. And that's probably another one of like the light bulb moments for your students, because it's great to hear, like actual experiences from women. And the biggest thing is just for men to just listen, like just listen, see what you can do to help and, and believe women. I think that's that's yeah. definitely a huge, huge thing that people can do. And to not immediately um, go on the offensive too, right? And that's true mm-hmm. for like, when
1: we talk about race issues too, like just cause you're white doesn't mean that any conversation about racism is implicating you as a racist, right? It's not, right. it's just about listening, listening to people's experiences and soaking that in and recognizing that you don't know, you know, just cause of the way your life is doesn't mean that you know how everybody else's life is that's what Mm -hmm. it comes down to really
0: and you also bring up another really good topic of why you think the word feminism isn't widely accepted why is this such a trigger to some people and and even like what does feminism really mean to you like if you sat your students down and said hey like this is what my true version of feminism is like what what would that be So my version of
1: feminism is that you are a feminist if you live in the world and you recognize that there are inequities in how women are treated. So that's the first half of it. So you have to recognize that there are inequities. The second part of it is that you want that to change, right? So if you recognize that there are inequities and you're like, it's cool, then you're not a feminist. But if you recognize that there are inequities and you want to fix it, you want that not to be true, then you're a feminist. And the the thing that I emphasize with my students about that is that feminism is an essentially activist ideology, right? And the example that I usually use is that if we're talking about what color the grass is and I say it's blue and you say it's green, like you'll think I'm weird and maybe I'm colorblind, but we don't have to do anything about it. Right. You can be like, all right, she thinks the grass is blue, whatever. It's cool. But you don't have to like do anything to change my belief. Right. But if I say women deserve to be treated equally and you say, no, they don't, then I can, I'm going to kind of feel like I have to do something about that. Right. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's, it's, it's really that simple. And women, I, m- I mean, as a very, very broad, broadly defined intersectional category, right? Trans women, non-binary people, gender, queer people, women of color, you know, poor women, all the women, anybody who wants to come under that umbrella. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's not complicated. I do feel like there was a time in like the eighties and nineties when it was even more sort of a, a bad word than it is now. I think that pendulum is starting to swing back a little bit, but I think that to the extent that, you know, a lot of it is sort of social media issues or um, radio. You know, Rush Limbaugh talking about feminazi's back in the day or there's sort of conversations happening in the culture that can make it hard for young women. And I think particularly for men to claim that as an identity category. Um, And so one of the things that we talk about in in women's studies is why it's not, you know, why we should all be feminists. Why like Chimamande Ngozi Adichie says, we should all men, women, non-binary people, queer people all be feminists because it's about equality. It's not about you know, it's been all about men and now it needs to be all about women and men suck and they're the worst. Like that isn't what it means at all to anybody. Mm -hmm. So some of it's just correcting that misperception. And then some of it's just, just getting down to brass tacks. Like it's not a complicated concept. And most people that you ask about it are like, oh, well, I think that, so, okay.
0: Yeah. And I I think it's, it's so true that it's like everyone's interpretation of a meeting. Um, But I always think like the intent behind it is the most important thing. So I I totally agree with just creating an equitable place for everybody, no matter who you are. Um, And it's, it's funny that you bring that up because I've definitely been in situations where people are like, are you a feminist? And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, like, like duh. Like, I mean, obviously like, (laughs) I'm not, like, I'm not, I'm not shy about my beliefs. Like I've never been, I'm very out outspoken person but it it has caught me off guard sometimes because I'm like how am I supposed to answer this like if I say yes are they what the assumptions so? are they making yeah right and and I it's so true that it's it's kind of made it hard for people to come out and say like yes I am a feminist because that quote-unquote stigma behind it for whatever for sorry for whatever reason is somewhat like looked down upon which just it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think it just shows how in the past, I think our current society is in and how much progress we still need to make.
1: Yeah. And I would would love- I think it's also really similar to like other kind of, you know,
0: like, you know, the Black Lives Matter
1: movement, like mm-hmm. people are sort of, well, all lives matter. Are you saying, you yep. know, other lives don't matter? And of course that's not what it means, right? Mm-hmm. We have to say Black Lives Matter because for so long they haven't. Same thing, we have to call it feminism and not humanism or whatever, because for so long women have been left out of the equation. And, and I think that that's where people kind of get tripped up is that they don't, they don't recognize what it means. And so I honestly feel like, one of the most activist things that I can do on a daily basis is just claim that label and model it, like model what that means mm-hmm. and model that, you know, yeah, I have blue and purple hair and I'm, you know, super loudmouthed, but I'm not scary and I'm not gonna bite your head. Well, I might bite your head off depending on what you say. <laughs> but you know, like that it's like I have a sense of humor and I'm not like this is not a thing that we need to be afraid of. This is not a thing we need to be afraid of embracing, and it's not it's not even at this point, I think particularly radical to be a feminist. It's really just sort of common sense to me anyway. And so I feel like the more that we can kind of promote that then the, the, the less of a of a scary thing it'll be for anybody to say, yeah, I'm feminist, duh. Exactly what you said, duh, of course I am. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And it's always so funny to me because I'm like, for people who don't understand feminism, or people who don't want to claim it, or even get a chance to get to understand it, I'm like, don't you have a mom? Like, don't you (laughs) like you like you came from a woman? Like I like that will never. Right. I I think that will just never click to me. It's it's always the first thing.
1: Like watching the, the sort of political situation over the last Mm -hmm. couple of years too, to look at how, I mean, it really has helped me understand this kind of fear of the F F word as it gets called um, better because, you know, I think the big reason why um, a lot of young women are scared of claiming that, that label is because they're afraid that it's going to make it even harder for them to be successful and to have power in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, there's this myth that if we suppress that voice. If we don't claim that label, if we do all the right things and check all the boxes, then the people that are in power, largely the white male people, heterosexual people that are in power, will sort of let us have some of that if we can perform our, you know, rightness for that job better. But of course, we know that that's not true, right? That's not how it works. And Mm -hmm. so I think that we can see how oppression and the patriarchy and, and sexism, it works by getting women to cooperate in it, right? By sort of holding that over their heads. Like, if you say you're feminist, I'm not going to promote you, or I'm not going to listen to what you say, or I'm going to dismiss you. And that threat that like, if we don't do, you know, or that promise that if we don't do that, then maybe we'll get listened to and we'll have more power. And I would also say that, that that's an area of privilege in some ways too, right? Like that as a white woman, I have if, if I wanted to, I have that ability to be like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not feminist or I'm not, you know, anti-racist or whatever. I'm just going to be quiet and do my work over here. Where I feel like women who have other intersectional identities, women of color, LGBTQIA, women, you know, they may not have the option to do that, right? Like if they're not going to get what they can get to get by anyway, then they don't have as much to lose in some ways, but also they don't have the option to just, shut up about it. And so one of the things that, that I, I try to, I mean, I get all kinds of students in my classes from all different backgrounds, but we do talk a lot about privilege and about how in some ways the the privilege to ignore feminism or to not claim it is something that you should maybe think about and like, don't take that privilege, like recognize that you, that's a privileged response and that you maybe owe it to people who are less privileged to, to step up and represent.
0: Yeah. And I, I do want people to know that like, when you don't suppress your voice. Like people will listen because I will tell you at my last company, women in leadership always stood out to me because there were very few and far between very, very few. And I had a lot of women colleagues who felt that they were either being held back, felt like they weren't getting the the pay that they deserved. I felt that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think last year, Yeah, last year, towards the end of the year, they basically got all the data from our company, all of the demographics, and they basically acknowledged that women in leadership was very low compared to the men, and then especially women of color. And I just recently took a course with Mana de San Diego, which is the Mexican American National Association here in San Diego, and I then learned that Latinas are only only account for 4% of the leadership within workforce within the United States, which is absolutely insane. And like, and I think my way and I like what we kind of talked about earlier is like my way of stepping up and like being a feminist is doing what I can to be a part of those demographics to be a part of those to like, you know, lead that way so I it's it's interesting because it's like it's often women think like okay I nothing is going to change if I don't say anything I need to stay quiet because my other counterparts are staying quiet and it's not true like it might be hard and it you know you might be put in awkward situations but I really encourage people to say something because corporate America, it's not fun. (laughs) It's, it's, it's not fun for women. It really isn't. It's not set up to be. And so I think making sure that like future generations don't have those same issues is really important. And that's something that I try and kind of live by when I'm out there doing certain things. Well, I think that's,
1: you know, that's so like what you're you're talking about representation. And I think that is such a huge piece of the puzzle. Like representation mm-hmm. matters. and and being able to see other people in the positions that you want to sort of aspire to is just huge. And mm-hmm. I think that we're really seeing this, I mean, I'm so excited by my students that I'm teaching by these amazing strong women and non- non-binary people who get it and who have a powerful voice and who will not be silenced like that's just amazing to me I'm hopeful because I see some sort of shifts in in pop culture too like where, you know, this year for the first time, uh, a show about indigenous Americans written and directed and produced by indigenous Americans won like some Emmys and they were there on the red carpet. And it wasn't sort of a like the tragedy of the American Indian kind of a show. It's like a funny, crazy, right. complicated show, right? I'm talking about Reservation Dogs for anybody who hasn't seen it, go check it out. It's amazing. But so I do feel like we are sort of starting to get more equitable representation of like Latina women and black women. I mean, it's we have such a long way to go don't misunderstand me, such a long way to go. But if I look at how it compares now, even to like 10 or 20 years ago, there's more stuff out there. And I just think we, you know, we can't even understand how important that is. You know, you saw the pictures of when Kamala Harris got elected as the VP, little girls from, you know, Indian and Desi and Black backgrounds being like, she looks like me. And I just... I mean, it like made me cry to see it because I just feel Mm -hmm. like this is so important. And we're seeing the ways in which these entire swaths of the population have been sort of shunted aside and left out of the national conversation. And we've lost their contributions that make this such a rich, engaging, amazing country to live in. And so I'm constantly frustrated by how far we have to go yet, but I also see things moving and shifting and changing. And I, I love being in a position where I can support and uplift that that's just, that's just, that's what keeps me going.
0: Yeah. And I definitely Kamala Harris, when she was elected, I think that was like a huge, and it's, it's so crazy. Cause that was, I think that was our first episode that we did was the oh, election. Wow, yeah. yeah. And it was just such a, like, crazy moment because we we talked about how when we were kids like we didn't have people like that to look up to like obviously we had women throughout history but it was like you didn't have anyone in real time that you could be like oh like that person's a vice president that one is a CEO of a company like those things were just not heard of and even my mom and I talked because my mom was like up until the me too movement those things just didn't necessarily register to me because it was so widely like it wasn't accepted. It wasn't something right. that you could come out and talk about. And I do often say is I'm so like pleased with Gen Z <laughs> because I wish I was that way. Cause I've always been an outspoken person, but like, I wish I had those passions when I was in high school or like even in undergrad, like I wish I was as involved as I am now. And Gen Z, I feel like has had that early start. Oh, and Gen that's... Z is not messing around. They are no. here to play. Yeah they really are and so I think that like that gives me enough hope of like okay well maybe when I'm older like I'll still be here to see like even more changes come and like more women being uplifted and you know represented like that's I think that is amazing and, and I think too it's just great because Gen Z is so like to me they seem so fluid like they you know and is which is amazing and I'm like okay like I, you know, some of my friends or people that I know that are my age are still struggling with the thought of feminism or struggling with the thought of like being equal to a woman. And I think seeing Gen Z is just, it's, I'm proud. I'm proud. Yeah. Of I
1: mean, I, so I have, I have two daughters. My oldest
0: is 15 years old and my youngest
1: is 12 years old. So along with teaching my, my college students who are also Gen Z, one thing that's been amazing for me is to watch how different my daughter's school experiences are than like, so I'm a Gen Xer. Right. And so I, it's, you know, I've always been a theater kid, so I've always had gay friends and I've always, you know, like I've always been sort of in an alternative kind of theater performance culture, but I don't think even my most gay friends in high school had come out yet. Like, I don't think that was a thing that happened in the eighties in high school so much, unless you were sort of like super alternative and willing to be basically socially excluded, as horrible as that is. Um, Mm -hmm. Bullying was a whole different thing. There was no awareness of a non-binary or gender queer identity. Like that just was not even a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I look at my daughters and like, you know, Their friends are like very open about being transgender or genderqueer or non-binary or lesbian or gay or bisexual or pansexual or, Mm -hmm. and and it's like they're fluent in that vocabulary and it's something that they're all talking about and it's not like, everybody it's not like you know heaven or anything it's not like all of them are accepted by their parents and everything is great but it's such a different environment than when I was going to school and with my college students too like they're just they come in with this familiarity with it and this willingness to sort of talk about it and and engage with it and i just yeah it's so amazing and i think in the past two years in particular with the pandemic and with political stuff and with global warming and all this kind of stuff, it's honestly been the thing that has kept me from sort of like just going to bed for two years and staying there with my head under the covers, right? (laughs) It's like being able to interact with these kids, like my, my, my daughter's friends and their peers, but also with my college students and really see like, if we can just not like burn up the planet
0: until they get to be in charge, like I think we might be okay. We'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, I I completely agree. And I, and I totally have, I have that same exact experience of like when I was in high school, middle school, elementary school, like I never heard the word non-binary, like the amount of people who came out during my time there was very few, like yeah. very, very, very little. And when I was in high school, this would have been like 13 years ago. Cause it was probably mm-hmm. like my freshman or sophomore year. Um, I had a friend who I played softball with and she came out to me and I I was the first person that she came out to and she was so scared. And I was like, you're safe with me. Like, mm-hmm. don't worry. But, but it's it, like, that's even a whole conversation in itself yeah. of just a whole stigma behind it. And like how people aren't open-minded or willing to accept people. And I'm so happy that these days it's a little bit easier than it was then. But like, I can't imagine how scary that conversation was to her or like, right. or how it was coming out to other people or her family. So I definitely... I'm very appreciative of Gen Z and them being so open-minded. And I'm even more appreciative for people who are in those generations, who are willing to change their outlook or their perspective. Cause like, that's what we really need too.
1: We're going to need this big Gen Z generation to be vocal because, you know, as we see every time there is sort of a move a progressive move, then there's a backlash, right? So yep. we elect a black, our first black president. And then after that, we elect Trump and we, you know, repeal the Voting Rights Act and all these other things. So we elect mm-hmm. Kamala Harris vice president, and now maybe the Supreme Court's going to get rid of Roe v. Wade. And yep. so there, it's like there's backlashes. And so I feel like to keep that momentum going and to keep that moving forward, we need the Greta Thunbergs. We need the uh, Malala Yousafzai's, We need the sort of rank and file women that are in high school and college right now who are just not going to put up with it, right like they're Mm -hmm. just not here for it. And I think that's, that's going to be crucial because because we do have you know people trying to outlaw gender neutral bathrooms and Mm -hmm. uh, people trying to make it a crime to I don't know vote if you're a felon all right, whatever like you know there's all right. these, these sort of cultural forces and it's i really do believe that it's kind of the death throes of the sort of former power structure and they're flashing around they don't want to lose power they don't want to not be the top of the heap but i think that they still have a lot of power they still have they still are at the top of the heap and so to really make a more equitable society we need this upcoming generation to be as as powerful and vocal as they are and so that's that's huge yeah
0: yeah, I am confident that they will definitely do that. I have no doubts in Gen Z. And I I would love to kind of get a little bit into your curriculum, maybe just like an overview of maybe your Women's Studies 101 class. Um, I know that there was two topics that we brought up where it was contemporary concerns within women's studies and then methods of feminist critical reading. So um, if you're talking to someone who is just taking your class, maybe like even from uh, a male perspective, like if I was a male in your class um, and I haven't really taken any specific course on it, how would you kind of explain those topics to them?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the main thing that I try to convey to the, those intro level students is that feminism and women's studies, it's less a certain kind of content and more about a lens through which you view the world. So when we talk about like a feminist critical lens, which I talk about in both my intro classes and in my sort of upper level classes, it's really about like looking at the world from a feminist perspective, which means, ba- I mean, at its most basic level, looking at the world with an eye to what kind of impact things are having on, on women and women-identified people and 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 looking at it with an eye to that sort of equity and equality question, right? Um, and because I my feminism is intersectional, that means also looking at the world with an eye to equity issues of race and, and gender and class and sexuality and education and geographical um, location and all the things, right? Like all the possible categories. And so one thing that I think sometimes can be, sometimes that can feel overwhelming, right? Because feminism is really about everything. Like it's there's nothing that's excluded. I can look at everything and anything with a feminist critical lens. That can seem overwhelming because it's so many things. It can also seem overwhelming, I think, especially for new people coming into it. Because once you start paying attention to that stuff, like wow, right? Like you start noticing a lot of bad, uncomfortable stuff that you maybe didn't have to notice before. Um, Jokes that you used to be able to laugh at suddenly are not super funny to you. Um, Comments that your, you know, roommates, friends make are suddenly yours like, oh, should I say something or should I not? Like it's, it can be uncomfortable, right? It's an uncomfortable position. And so one of the things that I like to do in class is offer people, first we talk about like putting that lens on putting that feminist those feminist glasses on to look at the world through them and then talk about like how do we use that right like let's practice in class look here is a blog post about women in society or here is a a novel about eating disorders or about rape culture and so how would we read this if just as an average sort of person like not thinking about feminism versus how do we read it if we're looking at it through a feminist lens and then once we've looked at it through the feminist lens like what next like what do we need to do next to sort of process what that brings up and, and put it out into society. So, I mean, one thing I think that in terms of content, we talk a lot about like the sort of second wave feminism approach to feminist content was to sort of add women and stir, right? Like, so you would take kind of a regular English class or a regular history class and you'd add in some female authors and you'd add in some authors of color and you'd like stir that into the mix. And that's, that's not a bad thing. I'm not like, let's yeah, add them for sure, but it's not like enough. Right. And so I think one thing that I try to do. In my classes, is in addition to having diversified my syllabus, right? To having materials and texts and approaches from lots of different kinds of people with lots of different backgrounds, we also try to diversify the the structure of the class as well. And so a lot of it is about decentering me as kind of the end-all be all authority figure in the classroom. So yeah, I've studied this more than they have. I'm aware I know the names and dates and stuff that they maybe don't know, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only person in class who knows anything. And my students bring in amazing. Lived experiences and perspectives that I don't have that I need to value and so in a way I try to set up the class so that we're a little bit more equitable in terms of the student teacher relationship because that empowers them to sort of know, speak their voices and speak their experiences and speak their truths. And it, I think it also makes it easier for them to hear maybe difficult things that I'm trying to tell them or to have difficult conversations about race and class and gender and sexuality, because they know that I'm, I'm approaching it from a place of, you also know stuff about this, right? Like this can be an actual two-way conversation. It's not just me lecturing at you and expecting you to absorb everything. Um, so I don't know if that is a really, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that that's the approach that I take really to sort of make it less about just sort of like that, that banking model of I'm going to deposit my information and in you, and you're going to spew it back out in the test and more about like, we're on this journey together and you have knowledge and I have knowledge and let's share that and have a conversation and figure out how we can all move forward in, into a, a world that looks more like we want it to look like.
0: And I love that just the structure that you have in your class of like, I am one of you like, and I, I, I agree. It makes it easier for you to have more conversations and less just like listening to a lecture and taking notes like for me having those conversations makes it so much easier for me to like intake information and like store it and remember it and I think that's great um and I I I would take your class I don't know (laughs) I, I totally would I wanted to get into a little bit what you thought or if if this is a part of your teaching at all is kind of like that typical status quo or the interpretation of what women should be. Um, You always hear the word mother, nurturer, caregiver. Like those are always the first thing that people think of when you think of a woman. And now I think too, in our current society, those conversations of like, I'm a woman, but I don't have to have kids if I don't want to. I don't have to be, (laughs) I don't have to do those things. I think my question is kind of like, How can we empower women to like break out of these stereotypes um, and kind of live their lives for themselves? Cause I think that is a huge topic. Cause I think people, once we're breaking out of these stereotypes that used to be what women are, I think women kind of are left with like, okay, well, what now? (laughs) Like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, or even
1: more so, they're left with like, well, I have to be everything, right? Like, I have to be super sexy and super feminine and super great mom, plus a high powered CEO, plus I have to do all the shopping, plus I have to be a gourmet cook, right? Like you have to do all the things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the sort of fundamental concepts that we talk about in my classes is the difference between an essentialist idea of gender and a structural idea of gender. And so the essentialist perspective is what you're talking about, where we sort of, as a culture, we've decided that there are certain qualities that are an essential part of women's nature, right? So women are just, just naturally more nurturing. They're just naturally maternal. They're just naturally um, gifted at housework. They're just naturally emotionally attuned, right, right, right. And all these sort of, yeah, these stereotypes that we have about what what women essentially are. Um, And I think that what we're recognizing and have been sort of recognizing since, you know, the 80s, at least, if not earlier, earlier than that, for sure, um, is that those aren't natural categories, right? Like there's nothing natural or biological or inherent or essential about any of those attributes. Those are all socially constructed concepts of what women should be constructed in part to keep them down low, right? Like to keep them in a secondary or tertiary position in in society. And so a big part of a feminist awakening or of learning about feminism is recognizing when people are talking to you in an essentialist way. And this can of course be, there's race essentialism, there's, you know, sexuality essential, you know, a woman has only XX chromosomes and never XY, that's not true, right? (laughs) So all these ways in which we think that there are some things that are just, just the way things are, like it's just biology, or it's just history, or it's just, you know, it's just essential nature, nothing we can do about it. And that's not true, right? So really, it's that recognition that these things that our culture is trying to tell us are just the way things are and there's nothing you can do about them, you can. And it's hard sometimes. And sometimes you can only do a little bit about it. But I think a big project of women's studies in general um, and of feminism is about sort of pushing out on those kind of stereotypical categories and sort of saying like, you're saying that a woman has to fit in this box and we're saying, First of all, just get rid of the box entirely like there's no box it's exploded. There's no borders right that's the ideal, but at least if we can't do that let's make that box a whole lot bigger right if if you're sort of saying uh, a woman of color can only be here and here. Let's, what does that category mean like it doesn't have to mean nanny housekeeper servant funny friend you know sidekick it also can mean main character complicated person political leaders right like so i I think a lot of it is about getting people to recognize that these things they think of as natural and that they just have to accept they don't like Mm -hmm. that, that mindset shift is huge and once you've had that mindset shift then when somebody is coming in and saying well women are just naturally better at x you can be like Mm, women are socialized to be better at X. They're socialized to pay more attention to children and to emotions and to housework and to budgeting, but that doesn't mean that they're naturally good at it. Right. And that doesn't mean that all women do that either. Right. So one of the things that's been happening a lot in the UK is this, what's called gender critical feminism, which basically means turf feminism, trans exclusionary radical feminism. And I don't even really think of it as feminism, but that's a whole different conversation. But so there's all this conversation about like, you know, women have wombs and women are, are women because they can have babies. And of course, like, even if you don't include trans women, that's not true. There are right, lots right. Of, of cisgendered women who can't have babies, who maybe, mm-hmm. who are intersex and don't have uteruses. who, I mean, so it's like, let's stop limiting these gender and sexual categories and trying to put boxes around them. Like, who does that benefit? Well, it benefits the people that are in power. So mm-hmm. what? let's have that conversation and talk about, let's get rid of those walls. Let's get rid of those categories. Let's expand these definitions.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely something that comes up a lot in like generational norms, like not only generation, but like cultural norms. And I think those two are scary to kind of break out of because it's almost like you're going against your family. You're going against your, your ancestors. It's a whole different, like, I think mindset that you have to have, but I think definitely breaking out of those norms and like not limiting yourself is the main And like, if you enjoy, if you enjoy being a mother, no one's, no one's upset at you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you enjoy those things, like that's totally okay. But if you feel that you're like stuck in something. I don't know, branch out, do, do what you have to do to find out what, what you actually like to do. Cause I, I
1: do think, yeah, it's, it's that initial mindset that changed. Like, so even if mm -hmm. you, yeah, are nervous about like, you don't want to get into a huge fight with your family or over Thanksgiving table or whatever, I totally get that. So some of it is about just starting inside here, right. And adjusting your mental mindset. But then also I think just like what you said, like we need to we need to be looking at creating a world where there's room for everybody, right? Where it doesn't matter if you are physically disabled or if you're neurally atypical, or if you want to have kids, if you don't want to have kids, if you want to have a big fancy career, if you don't like, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a world in which all of those choices were equally available and and equally destigmatized so that it wasn't sort of like, well you know, well, it's cool if you wanna be like a successful career woman, but we're not gonna really value you unless you have kids. Like you, right? That's sort of like saying, well, it's cool if you wanna be like a successful um, teacher, but unless you get out of that wheelchair, we're just not gonna really, right? Like gross, right? So let's yeah. let's try to think about how, what would a world look like? And some of this is this part of the mental kind of adjustment too is, is adjusting like sort of what your aspirations are. What would that world look like? What would it look like if we valued everybody equally? What would it look like if we didn't get defensive if somebody had a different experience than we do or makes different choices than we would make if we could kind of just sit and listen with that and kind of rest with that and not be not get into a fight about it or feel threatened by it and that's Mm -hmm. hard it's hard and it takes practice and it can be exhausting and sometimes you need to take a break from it and watch some crappy tv and that's all okay but Mm -hmm. it's it's really about just taking those first baby steps to re re rejiggering your mental outlook i
0: think yeah and i think too like a great a great idea for someone who might be in that situation is like finding someone who either you relate to someone that you look up to and like kind of looking back at their life, seeing what they did. And even like finding a really good friend who is someone that you can confide in is like the best thing that you can do. Oh yeah. Having like a partner on that road is, is you gotta, right.
1: You gotta have somebody else that you can vent to and that you can Mm -hmm. share stuff with and talk about stuff with. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I definitely process things through discussion and through getting mm-hmm. feedback. And so that's, yep. yeah,
0: that is huge for sure. Definitely. And, and another thing that I would love to talk about is um, any specific women throughout history that have kind of paved the way for the feminist movement, who are the women that we need to thank? wow there are so many um so my some of my so like my, my my
1: dissertation my my big my phd project is studying the the suffragettes the british women suffragettes movement and so i have to give a shout out to the suffragettes to mrs pankhurst in particular and to all the sort of women in england who who were like we're not Taking this anymore and we're going to like make a big fuss about it until you give us the vote and who died for it and who were tortured for it and who really put their lives and their careers and their relationships and their families on the line. In this country too, Alice Paul um, was a a big figure in the women's suffrage movement. I think we also need to sort of recognize people like Sojourner Truth, like Harriet Tubman, like Phyllis Wheatley, one of the first African-American published poets, recognizing that the history of feminism and of women's studies is also the history of racism and classism and, you know, homophobia and that we haven't always been as inclusive as we really need to be. That's a big part of it for me. But then also in more recent, um, I mean, you know, I think of people like uh, Laverne Cox, who's this amazing actress um, who's really been representing for the transgender um, community. I think of of people like Sylvia Rivera, who was one of the instigators of the Stonewall riots, um, and who for many many years was not recognized as such. So this 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 uh, transgender woman of color um, who got out there and was kind of you know making stuff happen on behalf of the LGBTQ movement before it even had a T attached to that acronym, mm-hmm. right? And so for me a big part of my feminism is uh encouraging myself to look beyond what is immediately first apparent so it's it's pretty easy to find out about my white middle class feminist forebears they're out there their histories are out there it's less easy for me to find out about the more marginalized voices in those movements and one thing this is something that i think this is like a trick that i think is super easy and super effective which is for anybody who's on social media, which is all of us now, right? Who's not on social media? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Seek out people to follow on social media that don't necessarily share your background that can give you different perspective. There are Mm -hmm. so many amazing Instagram and Twitter accounts by women of color, indigenous women, trans women that are, are... you know, you can just follow them on Instagram and on Twitter and you don't have to like talk to them if you don't want to, but you can. Um, but like, I think of Roxanne Gay, who's this a fantastic author. She wrote Hunger and she just, her Twitter and Instagram accounts are amazing. Ajiyoma ALUO, who is a, a contemporary sort of African-American woman, theorist and writer. Um, I think of uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom, Kate Mann, who else do I, but well, Imani Gandhi, if you're interested in reproductive rights um, issues, she's a fantastic Twitter follow and, and Instagram follow. And also like indigenous voices. So there's there's all kinds of fantastic Native American groups or Canadian Native groups that you can follow. And, and so just hitting that follow button alone, if you're on social media, it's like, that's going to shift and change how your feed looks. And it's going to shift and change the kinds of information that you get on there in ways that are really useful for making you aware of things that are happening in the world that you otherwise just would never know about, right? Or making you aware of perspectives in the world. And okay, well, here's how my friends are talking about this, but look at, there's, you know, all these women of color that I'm following, they're talking about it in this whole different way. And maybe I can listen to that and learn from that. So we have these amazing historical figures to look up to and also criticize. But there's also so much happening right now that that we have because of social media, the ability to interact or to to respond to or to see these people in real time that we've never had in history before. And that I think is, is something that's that's pretty easy to do and also has like a huge effect.
0: Yeah. And one person that I really love following is Viola Davis. I love her. Um, (laughs) And, but I love all of those. And do you have like a book maybe that you could recommend to somebody or maybe any of your favorite books? So I
1: have, I'm trying to look at my desk here and see what I have on here. So this is one that I use. So this is Samantha Irby and she is also a fantastic social media follow. She's great feed. And this is her book called we are never meeting in real life. And she's written, I think four now, um, sort of like essay memoir books. She's a fat black woman. She talks about being a fat black disabled, um, a bisexual woman in her books but her essays are hysterical and also really poignant and kind of like Roxanne she sort of is like Roxane Gay and in, in her kind of outlook and perspective and her humor that's an easy it's like a you know the essays are short you don't have to read the whole thing at one go you can kind of just look around at it um that is a really great one that I recommend to people also if you are into graphic novels Alison Bechtel's Fun Home which is also a musical that you can go see, is a fantastic graphic novel about being a lesbian and coming out as a lesbian and what that means and sort of negotiating sexuality issues. Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi, which was also turned into an Academy Award-winning animated film, is a fantastic graphic novel about um, growing up in Iran around the time of the Iranian Revolution and what it's like to sort of be in a liberal family and then suddenly have to wear a hijab and a burqa and, and, and negotiate those sort of cultural trends. So those are those are three that I, I teach a lot and use a lot that I think are great in terms of expanding not only our our conceptions of what it means to be female but also what it means to you know live in this sort of global world where we're we're sort of again intersectional we all have our intersectional identities and and we're multiply constituted so mm-hmm. yeah those are some of the I mean I could go on and on I've got a good few <laughs> ones I could recommend but those are some of the ones that I think are really accessible that you don't have to like take an hour to read them um, and they're just really really cool, fun, um, engaging educational
0: reads. I love that. And maybe we'll even do a giveaway for this episode. I love the, uh, we're never, what was it? Uh, we we're never we meeting, never in, real meeting in real life. Okay.
1: So yeah. good. It's so Let's good. do that.
0: <laughs> and I, I really wanted to ask, what is something that you can kind of expect when learning about women throughout history that you yourself might not have thought of before majoring in it? Um, like if there's someone listening, who's interested in learning more, what can they kind of expect or what advice do you have for them? I guess for me, the thing that
1: I would not have, would not have expected going into it. Of course I'm ancient, so this is talking about a long time ago when I first got into it, but I, I wouldn't have expected the ways in which women's studies would really connect me so solidly to the world around me. I feel like one of the biggest best things about women's studies is not just um, the sort of political awakening or the activism, but it's the way that it really, it really connects you to this like global web of communities of women that, you maybe didn't even recognize you needed, right? So it, it's it's sort of feeling like you're awakening or you're opening your eyes to this this whole huge umbrella community of of amazing, impassioned, complicated, difficult, funny um, people that it's like, it's like you feel, you suddenly feel enmeshed in the world in a way that I feel like as as a woman or as a person of color or as a queer person, you can often feel sort of untethered to the world, right? Like the world doesn't have room for you. It doesn't value you. It doesn't see you in the fullness of your humanity. And I think that for me, one of the the most fantastic things about women and gender studies is that it does see you. It sees you in the fullness of your humanity and it values you in the fullness of your humanity. And it values, Everybody in your class and everybody in your community and everybody in your school and everybody in your world. So, so that it's that sort of, um, I don't know emotional kickback or that sort of spiritual kickback, like I figured it would be learning about things, right? It would be knowledge. Knowledge is what I would gain from Women's Studies. And I have gained a ton of knowledge, Mm -hmm. but more than that, I've gained this sense of being seen and appreciated and valued for who I am and being supported in the struggles that I engage in and that I want to sort of reach out with. So that, that to me is what I would encourage anybody who's interested in it, that this is a place where you can feel
0: seen and heard and valued it it sounds like the perfect example of like a safe space. Like that. that's, yeah. it, that sounds like a great place to be. And even if you're not experiencing those feelings outside in your outside world, like having Everybody that feels in, that at some level, right? Yeah. And having that in a program or a class is like, that's, I think that's beneficial in itself. And if there's something that you can tell people who either don't like or understand the word feminism, what would it be? I would just say,
1: recognize that it doesn't, feminism is not about excluding, it's about including. It's about including literally everybody. So if you hear that word and you think that it doesn't include you, or you think that it's about hating or excluding or shutting anybody out, please understand that that is inaccurate. Feminism is literally for everyone. It's about recognizing
0: and valuing and including everyone. I love that. And I don't want to end this conversation because I feel like this has been like I was telling you earlier, like I can't believe we haven't had someone come on before and talk about feminism or women's studies, um, or even women throughout history. So this has been just like amazing to hear, and again, I would take your class in a heartbeat. I'm happy to do so. Um, but I think my last question for you is: I know I kind of asked you early, what feminism means to you, but what are your hopes for women and feminism for the future?
1: Yeah, that's yeah something I'm I'm constantly thinking about these days. Um, my my hopes for the future are that um, that we we are able to recognize and include women and non-binary voices. Um, in an ever-increasing level that we are able to recognize that the sort of enmeshed um, reality of our world that we can't sort of ignore global warming, we can't ignore feminism, we can't ignore people of color, we can't, that we really need to sort of be paying attention to all of it because it's all intertwined. and I'm hopeful that that some of the progress that we've made over the last decades with regards to representation and, and empowerment and vo- women's voices, women and non-binary voices, that we can keep that Going and that Gen Z and whatever is going to come after Gen Z, Gen Alpha, who knows? Um, <laughs> that they will be they will be supported and uplifted and empowered to make the kinds of amazing social changes that I can see that they're going to be capable of. So I guess my, for me, women's studies and feminism is about being able to maintain that hope for a much better, brighter future for everybody, um, and and that that's something that we 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 not only can achieve but that we will achieve.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. I love the mentality of like, we will do it. Not if we do it, Right. (laughs) but thank you so much, Elise, for being here. If you want to put like your Instagram or your Twitter, like where people can find you. My Instagram is at Elise Laura
1: Erica um, L-A-U-R-A-E-R-I-K-A. And I, I can, um, I'll email that to y'all too. So you can put it up on if you're have like comments or whatever. Um, but again, yeah, I post a lot of feminist art and a lot of like, again, grousing about things, you know? Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a fantastic discussion. I've enjoyed it so much. I'm so grateful that podcasts like this exist in the world. I think that is such an important part of the work that we're doing and of representation. And, um,
0: and I'm just really grateful to you guys. Thank you for having me on. No, thank you for being here. That that like warms my heart. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. All right, talk to you soon. Bye.